Proctor here with some announcements before we get into this week's episode. Elm Europe will be taking place on June 8th and 9th in Paris, France. Evan Zipuki and Richard Feldman will be speaking, and the rest of the speaker lineup is online. Early bird tickets are sold out, but standard tickets are still available. For more information and to register, visit elmeurope.org. The Erlang User Conference will be taking place in Stockholm, Sweden on the 8th and 9th of June, with training on the 7th and the 12th through the 16th. Early bird tickets are available and end on May 22nd. For more information and to register, visit www.erlang-factory.com slash EUC2017. Zuri Hack 2017 will be taking place in Zurich on the 9th through the 11th of June. Zuri Hack 2017 is a three-day Haskell hackathon hosted at the HSR Hochschule for Technique Rappersville, a fantastic venue located right at Lake Zurich and providing space for 300 participants. For more information and to register, visit surreyhack.info. Also, Elm Day is a one-day conference about the Elm programming language and practical use of Elm in Norway and the Nordics. It will be held in Oslo, Norway, Saturday, June 10th. Visit osloelmday.no for more information and to register. Curion Barcelona will be taking place June 19th through the 20th, a new and unusual non-profit conference focused on programming languages and emerging challenges in industry. Curion is a new conference focused on the intersection of emerging languages and emerging challenges in industry, as well as new ideas and paradigms in software development. For more information and register, visit www.curry-on.org. O'Reilly Fluent Conference will be taking place June 19th through 22nd in San Jose, California. Fluent spotlights the crucial technologies and frameworks of the web stack, JavaScript, HTML5, CSS, React, Angular, Containers, Docker, and other emerging tools that are transforming the way web developers work. Save 20% with discount code USRG on most passes. For more information, visit www.oreilly.com slash pub slash cpc slash 61309. Euroclosure will be taking place in Berlin, Germany on July 20th and 21st. Euroclosure is the biggest closure conference in Europe. Founded in 2012, the conference is a great place to meet closure developers and learn about what's happening in the language, in the community, and in companies using closure. Visit 2017.euroclosure.org for more information and to register. BusConf is a not-profit, open-space, unconference about functional programming taking place from the 3rd to the 5th of August in Germany near Frankfurt. They provide a platform for people to meet, teach, and learn about functional programming-related topics in any language. Ticket registration is already open, and you can find out more at www.buzz-conf.org. Strange Loop is coming up. Strange Loop is a multidisciplinary conference that brings together the developers and thinkers building tomorrow's technology in fields such as programming languages, databases, distributed systems, AI and machine learning, security, and the web. It will be held in St. Louis, Missouri on September 28th through the 30th at the Peabody Opera House. Registration opens in early June, so make sure to visit thestrangeloop.com to keep updated as tickets tend to go fast. Open F Sharp will be taking place the 28th and 29th of September in San Francisco. Taking place in the heart of San Francisco, Open F Sharp features two days of F Sharp talks and workshops with world-class speakers and a unique opportunity to connect with the F Sharp community and some of its key contributors, while learning about the latest developments in the F-Sharp ecosystem. Currently, tickets are on sale with early bird discount. Visit openfsharp.org for more information and to register. Lambda World is back, taking place in Cadiz, Spain, on October 26th and 27th. 
The call for papers is now open, so make sure to submit your talk or workshop. To submit your presentation and for more information, visit www.lambda.world. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I'll be happy to announce them. Also, some of you have mentioned you would like to show your support for Functional Geekery. In that vein, Functional Geekery now has a Patreon page. If that is how you would like to show your support, you can find out more at www.patreon.com fngeekery. And a giant virtual hug goes out to all those who are already supporting the podcast. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm your host, Proctor, and this week we have Dan Friedman. Dan, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Well, Steve, I grew up in a small town of Moody's, Connecticut. I recall at one point it had a population of 750 people. And I went to high school in Moody's, Connecticut. And in the senior year in my high school, a math teacher had a relatively mild heart attack, but he needed to take uh, a year off, and I was asked to teach the math classes, which had interesting consequences, like I never got senior math. <laughs> then I went to college, and it wasn't exactly great, because not having had senior math, I didn't know what a sine and cosine were. And that's tough when you're doing calculus. Nevertheless, I managed to get through the first year, and then I became a college dropout in the second year. But then I went back to college, or very quickly thereafter. I just uh, lost one semester. And I went to the University of Houston, and I had an incredibly wonderful teacher there. His name was Elliot Organic, and he wrote books, and I thought, boy, that's good. He wrote books to teach people things like the MAD language, which is Michigan Algorithmic Decoder, and, and then he had a book on Fortran based on the MAD book that was also successful, and then he wrote some really big, serious books, but they were all of a, an educational nature. He did a sabbatical at MIT when Multics was coming along, and he wrote a book on Multics as well. That teacher was a great inspiration, and while I was an undergraduate there, I had about 27 hours of computer science courses. So when I went to graduate school at the University of Texas, there weren't too many computer science professors there, <laughs> so I kind of knew more computer science than most of them. I got hooked on thinking about symbolic things, also from Elliot, because he handed out books all the time. That was what he did, because the books were either brand new when he made mimeos of them, that's those purple things. And it was a great deal of excitement because I really got hooked on programming. It was just the greatest fun ever. 
And it was just something I just couldn't stop doing. But when I read the Blue and White book, I said, oh, my God, this is this is amazing stuff. And believe me when I say this, I didn't understand it, but I understood enough that it was amazing. <laughs> so at that time, I just thought, well, I'm going to just keep grinding on this Lisp stuff until I figure it all out. And uh, it was great fun. So when I went to Texas, as I said, most of the people there hadn't had 27 hours of computer science or numerical methods classes. So I was able to help the teachers there a little bit. <laughs> and I was immediately hired as a TA, but as a TA, I was teaching three courses per semester alone, no support, the entire time that I was at the University of Texas Computer Science Department. But prior to getting my doctorate, a student came along, and he had wangled a position at the brand-new school called the LBJ School of Public Affairs. And since he had gotten a bachelor's degree from Stanford, he ended up taking one of my undergraduate courses that I was teaching. And he liked my style of teaching, and he convinced Dean John Gronowski, a former postmaster general of the United States, to hire me. <laughs> now, I got a, a letter from the dean, and it said, please come and give a six-week course, which I did. It was just a little side thing. I thought I'd make a few dollars, and it wasn't the worst thing in the world. And it was fun to teach them some Lisp and some other things that were related to computing or mathematics. And this was just to the faculty because the first group of students hadn't arrived yet. And next thing I know, I received a letter saying, would you like to join the faculty? And I said, well, sure, you know, why not? <laughs> well, it was not the most pleasant experience of my life. <laughs> but soon I graduated with my doctorate and then proceeded to go to Indiana University. And I've been here since 1973. One point I want to make is that while I started teaching there, very first class that I taught, at the end of my teaching them, which was, I think it was four weeks of nine in the morning till five o'clock at night with just this group of about 25 or 30 students. And there, my goal was to get them up to speed on computing and math kinds of course. Well, more like operations research because they wanted them to become government employees that would be able to help their senators or whatever. So while I was there and class ended, there was a week period between their start of classes and they asked me if we could write a book on the Lisp stuff. I said, sure, we can do that. So in one week, we wrote the little Lisper. Basically, it was a room and with a fairly large table, long, large table. And on either end was a blackboard. 
So we'd go from one end of the room to the, I would walk from one end and write down a question and then write down an answer. And we would just go back and forth. And we had people who were writing, describing it down and whatnot. And my wonderful wife, Mary, just brought food <laughs> to us. So we had a longer schedule. We went from like nine in the morning till midnight. <laughs> but we did it in one week. And this is in the day where the notion of a high tech device for writing things was a, a selectric. And my dissertation was done on a Smith Corona. So, and this is again all before my dissertation. I sort of doing both at the same time. And I had a PDP 11, which was a kind of a small little machine. And I say I because it was my responsibility to make that machine work in order to teach my courses. Anyway, so we had a, a lot of fun that week. And then I found somebody who was willing to actually type it. And then the next thing I knew, I was in a car. No, it, no, that's not exactly accurate. No, I got, I interviewed at IU. And during my interview, Ben Schneiderman was also interviewing, except that he came the day before me and I was the next person in. And I sent him a copy of the draft that we had. And I was just happy that we had the draft and whatnot. And next thing I know, and I don't remember how long it was after that, I was just letting him see it because I thought maybe he's going to be my colleague and we should become friends and whatnot. And the next thing I know, he's titled the book, The Little Lisper. He sent it off to a publisher, SRA. I had a contract. <laughs> that simple. And... It was a great, fun experience, and then I came here, and as I said, I love it here. It's fabulous. At this moment in time, we have, not including myself, five extraordinary programming languages people, and we're just loving doing what we do. That's all I can tell you. And I don't mean just me. I think everybody, at least in the programming languages group, loves it. It's it's a wonderful place, and we're getting a new building, and it's, we're all excited about it. So eventually, I did get here, and I went to my dean meeting, you know, because you do that when you're interviewing. And they said to me, well, how do you want to get tenure, or basically something like that? And I said, well, I want to get it as a teacher, because that's what I love to do. And... I didn't notice any weird looks from anyone. No, it was fine. Because you are allowed to choose three things. But then they, a year or two later, they said to me, where are your publications on teaching? And I said, well, I thought if I was a great teacher, that would be my tenure case would be based on that. Oh, no, no, that doesn't work. You have to write a book that has international reputation. And I thought, well, I'm never going to be able to write one of those. <laughs> and I said, okay, well, then I guess I'm going into research. And so that's what I did. And very, very soon thereafter, I uh, published a 
a paper with David Wise called Khan Shannon Evaluates Arguments. And then we started writing lots of papers on streams and lazy lists and so on. And eventually I be- actually became tenured. I had told my wife, I said, well, you know, academia is not for me. It's just not for me. <laughs> and um, we'll find something. I wasn't concerned about that. Anyway, so that's the beginning of my career for the most part. Then I became, you know, conventional, write papers all the time, do stuff like that. I had great colleagues back then as well. Uh, Again, I already mentioned David, but Mitch Wand and I ended up writing three different editions of Essentials of Programming Languages, which was a great experience as well. And then I decided to shift gears from uh, functional programming languages, which I have only cared for. I decided I would use my knowledge of functional programming to try to build a really airtight and fast, the key word here is fast, logic system, which at that moment in my life didn't even have a name. And I wrote some notes, about 120 pages, which included all the implementation and a few other things, and put it on my website for students to read. My students. My students to read. And I get an email from Ole Kisilyov saying, "Um, there's an awful lot wrong with your notes. I had no idea that it had made it to land of the ultimate (laughs) at that point. And we chatted. At this moment, I think we, it was about a 30 page letter criticizing my notes. Fine. And I said to Oleg, Oleg, um, let's do this together <laughs> since he knew a whole lot more than I did. So that's how Canon came into existence because he named it because SourceForge required you to have a unique name. And our only competition was the Kansas Research Network. So that worked out pretty well. And we had a great deal of fun making uh, improvements in my code in various ways, including even more efficient approaches that I guess was more in the literature than I'd ever seen because I'd never looked at the literature. (laughs) I just imagined what I wanted, and it ended up to being very close to the way Prolog works, except, of course, Prolog is the entire system, and I just wanted a handful of functions and macros to list to do it. So actually, along the way, when I was a graduate student, I did implement a, lang- a language called GRASP. And GRASP was for graph processing, and it was also in Lisp. And I'm trying to remember a name, but it's, it's temporarily left me, so I won't. But I didn't know how to do a certain thing. I just didn't know. And oh, Bill Cohagen. So I contacted Bill Cohagen, who was a graduate student at uh, Texas with me. And I asked him a question, and he said, well, I'm I'm in the neighborhood, I'll drive over. So he came over to the house, and I said, this is exactly what I want to do, and I don't know how to do it. He said, oh, that's just def list. I said, oh, okay. And he explained how to use it and so on. And within, well, within minutes, I had an implementation of graphs. (laughs) But I didn't, I just did that as my master's thesis, because I decided to go for a master's thesis when I was in Texas. 
So I really spent a lot of time trying to make it portable, which was a good experience because when you send a deck of cards to friends and people who hear about it, it's good that all lists would work on it. So I made it as portable as I could. So I already gotten into this metaphor of wanting code to be very simple to read and run on all systems. And in fact, when I interviewed at Indiana University, they wanted me to talk about my master's thesis, not my doctor's thesis, because one of the, one of my colleagues uh, in the psychology department had heard of Grasp and had used Grasp. I don't remember ever sending it to him, but he had used Grasp. And he was all excited that I was going to talk about GRASP. So I did. And I was happier to talk about GRASP than my dissertation, which was called GROPE. And GROPE was my attempt to take all the good ideas in GRASP and make them available in Fortran. And I succeeded at that, but I could talk for two and a half hours about the things that were wrong with Fortran and GROPE living in the same world. But Grub was actually a fairly successful language. A guy named Bob Barron mentioned it and had chapters on it in one of his books on data structures. And I'd driven to his place at the University of Iowa at that time to help him get it working on a 360. Um, that's IBM 360, depending <laughs> what generation you're from. And we, we got it all working. And then he just wrote a book, I don't remember the exact title, but I have it somewhere in my office. I just don't feel like walking around the office right now and hunting it down, but uh, it's here for anyone who might want to get more information about the title of the book and such. So it was actually a fairly successful system, but the moment I arrived in Bloomington, I said, I will not ever touch Fortune. Again, that's that was it. I mean, little things like the argument order isn't there. It's, it's compiled out of existence. So when you were reading a file with three things supposed to come into certain variables, you've got to be very careful. <laughs> it's It was a very strange language that was... It just didn't have anything clean about it as far as I was concerned. Anyway, so... I think that gets us to the very beginning of time. <laughs> and so if you wanted to grab the ball and ask another question, I'm happy to, live, to try to answer it. Okay. And you mentioned you picked up the little white book and you said... Oh, the blue and white book. So you picked up the book and you said, I see there's something here. I don't completely understand it. And you dug in and... I, I wasn't never going to let go. I, I made that decision. I fell in love the moment I saw it. And you fall in love, so you've continued to be in love. So what is it about lists? Have you realized now that you've been doing it for a while and you've proceeded to go through and you've used it in a, all kinds of different projects, what is that special thing about Lisp and has it changed over the years from the time you first looked into it and said, there's something here, it's magical, I'm never going to let this go even though I don't understand it, to where you are now? What was that? Oh, that's a very hard question. Brian Smith wrote a dissertation. Well, basically it was, it was about something called three lists. 
And there's a lot of philosophical writing in there as well. And at that moment in time, I had managed to still be loving Lisp. And, and I mean, it was quite painful. You had to type a deck of cards to run a Lisp, a Lisp program. And we didn't have little things like matching parentheses. You could, you could really have some tough times <laughs> debugging and such. But, you know, with the, with the great new editor, you, you can, you can't make a parentheses mistake if you try. <laughs> but so that was one of the things that sort of kept me going. Mitch and I got very involved in implementing what were called reflective towers. And these towers, each one is an interpreter and you can communicate across boundaries. So you can go up and down the tower. Which is a little weird when you think about it. So you have a tower of interpreters. It's only one interpreter, but it treats itself like a tower. And this is based on, you know, what was in Brian Smith's dissertation. But even prior to that, while I was still at Texas, Planner came out and two instances of Microplanner came out. Planner was Carl Hewitt's work and there were two versions, one an MIT version of their take on Planner. And that was, I think, Eugene Charniak and I think Jerry Sussman was involved in it. There may have been a third person, sorry, that's slipping my mind. And there was one in, at Stanford. And when you get two, you can sort of go back and compare and contrast and things like that. And of course, Conniver came out as well, which was a wonderful tool full of interesting technologies for doing sort of AI-ish kind of work. But I was only interested in the language aspects. So as long as you're getting neat things coming out to study and to read and to try to figure out how to say them better and stuff like that, then you're having fun. When the scheme report came out and Incidentally, Mitch Wand was on the faculty at the time, and he had come home from winter break. And I walked into his office and said, Dan, I've got something for you. And this was this big duffel bag, like an army duffel bag or navy duffel bag, whatever, you know, a big tall one. And he had taken, I don't want to make it sound like it was illegal, he got graduated from MIT, so he grabbed all the tech reports, and one of them was the, the scheme report. And while I was at Texas still, I was trying to figure out how to implement a nice interpreter in Snowball 4 that would give me all the beauties that I wanted. But at that time, I didn't understand higher-order functions at all. Okay, They didn't exist for the most part in all the LISPs, and they just weren't part of the uh, the culture. And when I read the scheme report in December of 1975, and by the way, Mitch said to me, Dan, I think you're going to like this. And he hands it to me. <laughs> and I did like it, but I quickly removed all the, the multiprocessing aspects because I wanted to focus specifically on getting the list part right. And even though they had something like that in Lisp 1.5 programmer's manual, it was still 
too complicated. It's called the fun arg. It just, you have to know what you're reading, why you're reading it in order to get it. And it just wasn't getting in. So when I saw this thing that Jerry and Guy had done, I ripped them out and then I sat at my Selectric. I invested in a Selectric when I became a faculty member. <laughs> and I typed up a program that I called CODA, C-O-D-A, because it sounds like code. And it was kind of written in like a CPS style, but I, of course, didn't know what that was either. So there was always something left to do after you were done. So that's kind of like a coda. Like symphony ends and oh, there's more. Okay. So I, I called it coda and it was on one sheet of paper that you could stare at and absorb all the metaphors that are hiding in the code. And so that was something that I did. And then Mitch and I looked at it and I explained how it all worked with him. And he said, Oh, in that case, we can do this and we can do that and so on. And it was, it was wonderful. So it worked out really well to have gotten in, 19, in December of 1975, this magnificent document. I could not put it down any more than I could put down Brian Smith's dissertation. I believe that was a bit later, but I'm not even certain of that at this moment. And that came from a friend as well, Bob Thillman, who got his dissertation at Stanford from John McCarthy. And we, he also became a colleague here. And after he'd left, he'd gone to a talk. And sure enough, he had sent me a copy. And he also said, you're going to like this. And I loved it. So it's a, been very lucky to have very close friends who care about you. So moving on, after I played around with this logic stuff with Oleg and so on, I went to a meeting at Carnegie. And I'm walking around, just minding my own business, so to speak. And the big, tall, lanky guy walks up to me and says, can I talk to you for a few minutes? And, of course, that was Will Heard. And we chatted, oh, quite a while. And I extolled all the virtues of IU. We had Kent big back then. And we had uh, Amar, I'm sure, back then, Amar Sabri. And at that point, we didn't have Ken Sean or Sam Tobin Hochstedt or J Jeremy Seek. Actually, we had a little bit of Jeremy Seek. He got his PhD at IU and then came back. And then we hired Ryan Newton. So we have this, as I said, this great group. But at that particular time... I just chatted with Will, and I didn't know he was what he was doing. I just tried to sell the product, you know, the, the school. And he shows up, <laughs> which shocked me because <laughs> I had, I remembered him very well, but he didn't send me an email or anything. I just he just showed up one day, and, I, and then he took my course and he learned the magical stuff that I try to teach to people. And then I handed out the 120 pages <laughs> to the class and I didn't tell them to go look at it. I don't think I did because I didn't think I really realized anybody could get to these things at that point. But anyway, they, it was a place to hide things, to put things. It didn't hide too well. 
Anyway, so I think that kind of tells a little bit of the the work that I've done. It's not all of it by any stretch, but I really have made a commitment in my emotional life that if I don't see parentheses, I'm not going to play with this. <laughs> I don't like to read code that's not fully parenthesized and that the, where the authors of the code have a a commitment to their own notion of what it means to have a precedence order and stuff. I, I like. On the other hand, you know, macros do let you play with precedence order too. So, but I also made this commitment that I was going to do things where simplicity would be the overarching model. And Jerry Sussman has this great quote: "If I have to look at a manual, the language is too complicated." Or something close to that. And I had sort of the same philosophy. I felt that I just want to think with these pieces in my head. And so that when I take a nap or go to sleep, I can actually see all the pieces. If I have really complicated, powerful tools, it in some sense makes me stronger, but it also requires that everyone else be that strong. So I prefer to make it simple. And then other people can take whatever I've done. Nothing is, I don't believe I've ever copyrighted a piece of code. Take what I've done and say, okay, well, this could be done this way or this could be done that way. In fact, our implementation of Mini Canron at one point was quite hard to read, to put it mildly, because it was the two continuation model of logic programming. And that was a master's degree, I believe, at uh, MIT, whose name has definitely left me. However, if you have a copy of the essentials somewhere, I think it's referenced in there. But I just wanted to build my own prologue system because I could never understand it, truthfully. I mean, it was, it started too high for me. I needed something that would be lower and I could absorb all the metaphors that way. But I wanted to teach it to my students and I, you can't teach something that you don't fully understand. I think you have to fully understand it. But once I built it, I could go to the prologue books and fully understand what they were trying to say. So as part of my 60th birthday, which was too many years ago, <laughs> there was a party, you know, where you invite your friends and colleagues and so on. And then they speak. I think you can find it on the web, all, the, all but one talk. As part of that birthday, I, I got a birthday present from a now colleague, Chung Shan or Ken Shan, as a lot of people know him. He took my code and he translated it into monads, which turned out to be more readable <laughs> than mine. It didn't take a big, it didn't require a big step to do that. And at that time, I didn't know Chung Shia and Oleg asked me if it would be okay if he brought him to the party. I said, absolutely. And so I got to know him, and he, after he got here, he said, well, I will improve this code. I will make it more readable. And that's mentioned in the first edition of the Reason Schemer, that he's the responsible party for making the code readable. In the past, we used to refer to it as write-only code. <laughs> I don't know if that term is in existence anymore. <laughs> okay, so I knew this student who was in graduate school, Richard Salter in the mathematics department. 
And he took my uh, undergraduate class, which everyone was taking my undergraduate class, whether you were in graduate school or not in those days. And he left the class with uh, a friend, and we did a bunch of other research and work on robotics. And prior to that, I was with John Lawrence, who became the head of SRI at one point in his career. And I taught him a lot about stuff I did with Gary Hendricks at Texas on robotics. And we ended up publishing a, a paper on that. And he was undergraduate at the time. So I've had a lot of opportunities to do things in Lisp that are not necessarily programming languages or directly about programming languages because, you know, I had those opportunities. One of my favorite stories was uh, Barry Gold. Uh, he was a researcher under a name Stockowitz, who was all about linguistics. And he told me the story that every time he hired someone, because he became like the head programmer for this linguistics group. Every time I hired someone, they would work with me for six months and give up. And he says, how come all my list programs look like Fortran and yours don't? <laughs> and I said, I explained to him why that was. And because his mindset was that way. And so I taught him Grope, as well as teaching Gary Hendricks Grope. And he did his... He did an AI project using this sort of robotic model and published it in the Journal of AI, which pretty prestigious even back then. And because I sat and taught him how to use my language. And I cannot forget Jonathan Slocum, who also learned Grope and was sort of like a partner to me when I was in graduate school helping with the Fortran and stuff like this that I, I really understood quite well. But it was a lot of programming to do because you need a garbage collector <laughs> to run growth programs. And so we added a, a garbage collector to our implementation of growth in the CDC 6600. So that was a very tricky thing to do. But we've managed it anyway. As I said, about once I... So what it did to my order evaluation expectations, it, I knew how to get around it, but I wasn't going to impose that on anyone, not on a human being on the planet. So you had a question. I forgot the question. That was too long ago. What was the question specifically? <laughs> it was just getting into some of those things that you've started to love about Lisp over the yes. years. And I think you kind of evolved how these different things have fed back into ways you've approached this. I, I, I can get a little further on that. I want to accomplish things in my life. I know that sounds weird because everybody wants to accomplish things in their life. But I want to take whole languages, and I did many of them, and implement them in an evening or two evenings. And I don't know still of any language that allows me to start implementing right from scratch from reading a document. Now, there are people who are extraordinarily brilliant and can do this. I'm not in that category, sorry to tell you. And so I can read a, uh, there was um, Dick Keepers, um had written a, a paper about Marigold. And then he gave a talk here, and it was, he used some stream stuff and things like that, which was, I was way past the streams time of my life. And I looked at it, and I thought, oh, gosh, 
He knows the language. He designed it. I know how to read people's words <laughs> in a certain sense. And I thought, well, we could probably do this, uh, having listened to him talk and so on. So we had a party in his honor at my home. And I said to him, I said, I can take you back to your hotel right now, or we can implement Marigold. Which would you rather do? And he said, well, let's implement Marigold. And by the time we were done, which was probably an hour or two hours later, we had a full implementation of all the semantics of Marigold. And I had made one tiny error in judgment. We had these things called engines. And I didn't use them to get the full power of the marigold. But by the time I woke up, I realized it. And then I was able to hand him a sheet of paper and say, here it is. And it was fun. I mean, the fact that you can do these things fast, if you have the right mental state, is amazing. It is absolutely amazing. And the trick as a teacher is to get the students to get into that mental state. And once they're in that state, they become rulers of the world, metaphorically speaking. I mean, they they can do whatever they want. They know they can do whatever they want. And that's that's the thing that Lisp gives you, in my opinion. Now, I'm sure Haskell gives it to you, and I'm sure ML gives it to other people. And, what you know, I'm sure that's all true. But we always start at the very bottom by understanding the syntax, type in the macros, Imagine that they have the implementation already in place, and now you've already got your structure, and away you go. And of course, these are just DSLs. But so what? You know, that's DSLs weren't a word <laughs> until quite a long time in my career before DSL actually made it into the English language or the equivalent of that. And I think it's a much better term than macros. By the way. I love macros, but they don't tell you much. <laughs> Okay, so the, the word itself doesn't tell you unless you know what it is, whereas the itself, the words that go with those, is much better. So, yes, that's the main thing is I always like to be able to just implement a language in, in minutes as opposed to days and weeks or months. I remember a story from Matthias. I'm sure he didn't tell it. But Matthias wanted to go to Dallas where I had been consulting with Texas Instruments. We thought I'd have clout there and I could help him get a job there for the summer. And I said to him, well, why do you want to do that? And he said, well, my wife's family lives in, in Austin. I said, wouldn't it be better to be in Austin? <laughs> he said, yeah. I said, well, let me make a phone call. And I had returned from a meeting of about, maybe it was like, 30 professors who the uh, University of Texas was looking for to give a endowed chair. And there was one guy I really struck a nice conversation with. And so I called him up and I said, I have this great graduate student. I think I used the word amazing, but maybe, maybe it was great. And I, I would like to have him come down to Austin and get paid for all he's there. He says, oh, there's this new thing called M MCC or something like that. And it brings people from industry and it brings people from academia and they meet together and whatever. And I think I can get them a, a summer job there. I said, okay. So Matthias went to this talk and the guy was going to build an operating system. And he had a design all laid out. 
And Matthias said to him after the talk, I think we could implement this in a week. And he had already said it was going to take a year, right? So I just taught the course where I used, I guess it was Scheme then. Uh, yeah, it was Scheme. Where you use engines, which allow you to sort of split time in various ways. So you use engines to, that I developed with Chris Haynes. And it allows you to timeshare, so to speak. So he was able to write the macros and the functions and so on. And, of course, he probably did it in his head before he even bothered to even type it down. And sure enough, he kind of knew what it was going to do. And so the week was not an exaggeration. I'm sure he talked to him a little bit more about what he was planning to do. So they had a version within a week of his operating system. And it was just an abstraction. It was just a model, right? But then you at least know where you're going and you know all the messes. And sure enough, he found a bug in his design. So this is the kind of thing I like to do. I like to build things and I like to build them fast because that forces you to focus all your attention on what it is that's actually being said. And that's what Lisp has given me. And when I use the word Lisp, I'm not really being particularly picky at, as a, being a true Lisp. It just has to feel like Lisp. It can be improved. Racket is an amazing improvement over the conventional notion of Lisp. I also don't want to have a manual in front of me all the time, even if it's on the screen. I want to have the tools inside my head, not somewhere else. So does that help answer your question? I, I see you're smiling a lot. I hope you're enjoying <laughs> oh, absolutely. But you know, I could be working for hundreds of hours, not just a few. <laughs> oh, and yeah, I'm looking at the time and I'm sitting there and I'm like, oh, I could go. Let, I let, me, not, let me not forget one more person who's been very influential in my life, and that's Jason Heeman. He took my course where I changed people's minds about the world and then became my student. And he's getting very close to finishing and he, he's been... Just like Willie's dragging me around the world <laughs> to give talks with him. Always, I don't like to speak alone. Really don't. It's more fun to interact with people and stuff like that. So, yeah, Jason's been fabulous. And his micro cannon has really been very, very successful. As well as, and by the way, Will named Mini Cameron. But basically it was take Cameron and make it understandable because Will was not getting it, and I knew he was extremely brilliant, even though he tries to hide it. He's not very successful. <laughs> anyway, so that's where I am on the answer to that question. <laughs> Do you have any other questions? <laughs> and I could probably keep you on, but I want to be respectful of your time. But the last question before we start to wrap up is, mm -hmm. you talk about teaching and changing people's mind. Do you have any quick tips or advice that you want to let people know about or how to start thinking in that when they go share it? I'll give you some tips. The first thing is that I always did in all my courses, even before this, is to convince the students in the first two lectures that I am going to change them. Okay, they will walk out of here a different person than they walked in. Now, every teacher probably has that as a dream. 
but I know that I changed them. Now, not all the students succeed in the course. They, they decide it's not for them. But like an example of when I was younger, I would teach them how to write every recursive program in less than about a minute. You have to learn how to do that because in my course, everything is going to be recursive and they need to think that way. And that's why I was so excited about scheme making it deal with tail calls properly. You get everything you want because you're still thinking recursively. But the thing to do is to have those two lectures be so perfect and lay out these laws that I have that say, look, you've got to realize that there's going to be two or three cases. And that's usually all there are. And work those out. And then I used to, in my classes, I haven't done it lately. I used to say, okay, take out a paper and pencil or pen or whatever. You know. And let's write this function. I will describe what I want you to write. And you have to do it right now, right in this minute, this second. All right, I'll time you. And I, I give them like maybe a minute and a half. And there's on the board right next to it an exact answer if you make one little change to it. So if they're following the lecture, they know immediately what to do. And then they do that over and over, and it becomes what you can do. So when Richard Salter took my course, I gave a test. And on the test were 25 programs to write in one hour and 15 minutes. This is a lot of years ago, too. He got a perfect grade. Perfect grade. He'd never done any program before. I don't, maybe he had, I don't remember, but he just, he, he ate it all up. I had a class, the three students who sat in the middle of the class. At no time did they take out a piece of paper. They just absorbed it into their bodies. And that's the thing I try to do is to really get them to understand from the get go everything. And these were the three best students in the class. There was no question. But they never had to do it. I said, how did you do it? Well, everything was obvious. Well, when everything is obvious, <laughs> it's perfect, right? So they didn't take out a piece of paper the whole time. And I had a student, John Rossi, who got his doctorate, and Jonathan Sobel, who are incredibly brilliant and wonderful people. And they got it all right off the bat. And there was another student, Anurag Mendekar, who, a fabulous student, Shinder Lee. I mean, I had these amazing students, Julia LaWall. They just got it. They came from, you know, from undergraduate programs or what have you, knew nothing. And I said, look, there's nothing to this. It's all simple. Just listen to what I have to say. Matthias came to me. You know, he was a student. That's when Bruce Duba, who was wonderful also, was there. And Bruce was his AI, and Matthias was a student. And Matthias said, do you mind if I do all the programs in Prologue? I said, no, but why don't you just bear with me for the first, you know, couple of weeks and see if it's okay. You know what he knows. <laughs> you know what he's been doing. Right? 
So once you understand how simple things can be, it changes your whole perspective on things. And that is very important. And that is the thing I try to teach my students. How simple these things can really be if you just have the right set of words coming to you in the beginning. Okay, so that's been my trick. And now one of the things I do is I show them how to derive Ackerman's function during this first or second lecture. They derive Ackerman's function in the second lecture of my programming languages course. And by the time we're done, we start with higher order functions to do it. And before they're done, they understand completely how to derive it. It's a marvelous, marvelous lecture. And then it's evolved, and Jason has added a lot to it. He's improved it a lot. All right, so anything else I can do for you? Yes. So before we wrap up, I want to give you the chance to plug anything you've got in the pipeline, anything that you want people to know about, either past, present, or future that you want to tease, or anything else that you just want to touch on and just highlight to people to go check out or keep an eye out for. Well, as you know, I really, really, really like the excitement of writing a little book. It's just so much, so much to think about, and that's a good thing. And after I finished The Little Prover with Carl Eastman, and we had a great time with that, I sent a copy to a dear friend of mine, Adam Falzer, who's from Bloomington, and he was invited by me as a seventh grader to take 311. I sent him a copy of the book. You know, it's very easy these days. You just get on Amazon and just make sure you have the right address and you're done. So he called me up one day and he said, what's your next book going to be about? And I said, well, I'm thinking about dependent types. I don't really understand them. I don't appreciate them. I want to understand it. I want to do that. And he says to me, don't move. Okay, I will move. <laughs> and next thing I know, I have a letter to two people. And it was David Christiansen and myself. And we quickly started communicating. And then we met in Prague. That's really just a few days later. And we've been working ever since on a book, which I'll describe what it's about, which is programming and proving with dependent types. And as I said, it's a little book, so it's fun. And we um, have developed the language. I'll just say full of parentheses and let you work out the details. And have class tested it for one semester already. And I think the students have done quite well with the material. And it included both undergraduates and graduate students. And it's, the language is called Pi, as in something you eat. And we do have a working title. But we don't have a title we're in, in love with at this point. We, we have a working title. And if any of your, <laughs> any of your listeners want to propose one, <laughs> we'll be happy to accept or at least look at it if they think it will capture the essence better than the little typist, which is the working title. That would probably be okay. Who knows? 
send it to me or David. It doesn't matter to me. So that's where we are at this point. We're making good progress, I think is the best way to say it. And I don't have any idea when it will come out, but I'm hoping it will come out in time for Tech Mesh in London. And that sounds really interesting because I'm at the same boat. It sounded like you were at the beginning where it sounds really interesting, but I have no idea of what dependent types really mean, really apply. But so, and I appreciate your other little books. So I'm no, I'm looking forward to seeing a little book on dependent typing. So I can't wait for that to come out, but thank you. As we wrap up, you have your university staff page. Are there any other places for people to keep up to date with what's going on and just any other progress that you're making throughout your ongoing career and learnings and sharings with everybody? Well, prior to the internet, (laughs) I always like to write the books and let people kind of respond to them. But we have slowly accepted the lack of privacy <laughs> that goes with with the internet. And I still like to get the books mostly done before I send it to the publisher. You know, most people, when they write a book, they write a prospectus and try to sell the publisher on it. And I've never done that. I just send it and if they like it, fine. If they don't, I'll rewrite it. Whatever. That hasn't happened, but it's, uh, we were very lucky. <laughs> but, um, I, I think it's very important to be an educator. That's all I can say. And you get a bigger audience when you write books than you do when you just have a class. And I don't think I have the wherewithal or the discipline to do a MOOC, <laughs> by the way. I, I mean, I could do a MOOC if everybody would do all the work beforehand and get it all organized. But, you know, you're supposed to actually begin and end at a certain time, and these are not things that I know to. Anyway, it's been a pleasure. I, I hope I haven't offended anybody. <laughs> I certainly enjoyed questions, I enjoyed the conversation, and this is, just in case anyone is wondering, it's totally unrehearsed. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking your time to join me. I've been having you on my guest dream wish list for pretty much since I even had the idea to do this and say, who are the people that I would love to talk to at some point? So thanks for sharing your stories. Thanks for taking your time. You dropped a lot of names, a lot of ideas that I wasn't even aware of. So there's a lot of stuff to dig in and understand and just appreciate more of the richness of our field that's out there in the history that we should be looking at. So Thanks for taking your time. And if you ever want to come back on, share some more stories, share some other stuff because you get excited about it, open invitation back. But we're at our time and I want to be respectful of it. So thank you very much for joining me today. It's been my pleasure. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you very much, Dan. It's been an honor to have you. Thank you. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.